0: If your memory stretches back that far, particularly if it stretches back clearly uh, to 2013, Melbourne Now was a landmark exhibition at the NGV that brought together not only a broad array of art forms, art, architecture, design, jewellery, fashion and more, but it was a snapshot, a celebration, a really significant statement by the National Gallery of Victoria in terms of what Melbourne's art worlds, and I use the word worlds, plural, very deliberately, what Melbourne's art world looked like at the time. Uh, This week, uh, the National Gallery of Victoria, aka the NGV, have made an announcement that there will be a new Melbourne now uh, in 2023, hopefully by which time we are well beyond the current crisis that we're all facing. Joining us on the line to tell us a little bit more, the NGV's Assistant Director of Curatorial and Audience Engagement, Donna McCollum. Donna, a very good morning to you.
1: Hello, how are you, Rich? Nice, nice to
0: speak to you. Nice to have you as a guest on the program. Sorry, we can't do it Thank face-to-face, you. but hey, I that, know. that would involve, I don't know, layers of plastic and, and kind of gauze and face masks and breaking all kinds of like guidelines. It. So, yeah. So... <laughs> In terms of this announcement, I'm intrigued to know what it means, not just for the NGV in terms of uh, adding to its collection of contemporary art, but would it be fair to say that the 20, kind of 23 Melbourne Now will also be a statement by the NGV in terms of recognising just how disrupted contemporary arts practice has been kind of, uh, because of COVID and a way to support contemporary artists in Melbourne by saying we will buy your work.
2: Mm, Yeah absolutely Um, you know it's quite unusual to announce an exhibition so far out (laughs) you know usually it's just in the months prior and so to announce in 2020 a show three years away is fairly unprecedented and you know you're exactly right for that reason we know that you know Victorian artists are in a tough bind right now and and hopefully this announcement comes at a time where our commitment to supporting their work and to create new work and acquire it for the collection and show it to our community will come at a time that they need it most. And our commitment is to start to acquire that work this year. So, you know, leading up to 2023, we'll actually be commissioning and acquiring work, you know, basically from this year onwards. So, It has a long gestation period and one that we hope will support artists throughout that period of time, artists and designers, I should say, because that's the really distinctive part of this exhibition is that it's art and design.
0: Certainly my memory of the design wall at uh, NGV, (laughs) Ian Potter at, at Federation Square, is still vividly in mind, the fact that an entire wall arranged beautifully showcasing different elements and aspects of contemporary design made by Melbourne designers and showcasing that and saying this is just as relevant and just as important as, I don't know, contemporary video art or contemporary jewellery and so forth. It was a pretty remarkable statement by the NGV. Looking back at Melbourne now in, in 2013, did it represent, for example, a changing of the guard at the gallery?
2: Yeah, it absolutely did. And, and the whole impetus to... to um hold melbourne now at that time was a way to reconnect with local artists it came at a time that tony elwood became the director of ngv and i suppose you know a fresh face coming in and looking at what the programming was doing he noticed that there was a really um you know a lack of engagement with our most important local artists so you know from emerging through to senior artists and that was really a, a moment where he said i want to commit to supporting you Design was a very new aspect there, and the design wall, you know, there were over 21 design studios involved in creating that wall, which had about 700 products that showed that Melbourne designers are also really working very innovatively and on an international stage and creating some objects that probably you don't even know when you're looking at them, like the Keep Cup, you know, lo- locally designed, and so that was a really big moment, and that actually, the impetus of the design wall Created the opportunity for us to to start a department of contemporary design and architecture So that had a really important impact actually on the organization itself and now You know exhibitions like the NGV triennial and the annual architecture commission and all of that work that we do in the design space really came from that moment of saying, hey, let's broaden out beyond visual art and also include design. You know, lots of change came from that opportunity. It, you, you know, you can't underestimate how important Melbourne now was to the NGV You know, institutionally.
0: And also how important Melbourne Now was to the artists of Melbourne because it recognised that a range of contemporary disciplines, uh, fashion, jewellery, painting, sculpture, video performance as well. I vividly remember some of the performance works that were were staged as part of Melbourne Now, for example. So this is an opportunity, as you said earlier, not only to collect work being made by artists in Melbourne Now and now being from this point now through to Mm -hmm. kind of 2023 when Melbourne and now is staged. But it's also a chance, as you said, to commission work. And commissions often, not always, but often allow artists to create more ambitious works of scale. Tell us a little bit more about what the commissioning process will be like.
2: Yeah, commissioning is really important and you know it needs that gestation period you know artists and designers need to research their work and consider you know what is the, the topic that they want to tackle and you know it, it kind of is a moment for us to support them with time really to create that work and so commissioning is a very important process of, of a lot of what we do now and so we had about 175 artists in the last exhibition you know we'd be looking at you know, a not dissimilar number though this exhibition will focus solely on the entry the Australia building and we're hoping that a good portion of the work will be commissioned. So, you know, works like, you know, you'll remember Marco Fusinato's incredible sound installation at Melbourne Now in 2013 where you walked into the room and you were kind of blasted with white noise, you know, people who are working in media that needs the time to kind of create the concept. That's what we're really interested in is, you know, also buying work that is existing because artists continue to make work here and now but also giving them that time to create work that they haven't even conceived of yet um that process involves with our curators and different staff also meeting with artists seeing what they're up to you know having those discussions and so you know we can't wait when the time comes to actually get out there and talk to some artists in the flesh um and kind of talk to them about what they might
1: do
0: now, amongst some of the other artworks that I vividly remember from the, the first Melbourne Now, Daniel Crook's work, for example, a video piece, uh, it, yeah. which was an endless walk down laneways, cutting and <laughs> splicing so that you kind of endlessly jumped forward. This is an opportunity to celebrate not only the artists of Melbourne, but to celebrate Melbourne itself.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of, um, you know, Melbourne inspires artists and musicians and writers and, you know, all sorts of creative practitioners. It's such a vibrant city and, you know, it will be a game. So, um, you know, it is a very locally focused um, exhibition and the support for the artists is very much about our local environment. And, um, however, looking at, you know, broad international themes and they might be around you know, gender, identity, all of these kind of global issues, the environment, but then also really celebrating what's in our backyard. And Daniel's work is amazing. You really did feel like you were completely immersed in this other world, kind of blurring and blending those laneways. And, you know, having that work in the collection means that we bring it out um, in our collection displays and, you know, we're we're really kind of showing our commitment, I suppose, to those creative endeavours. And um, so it's a really important way of, of building the collection for the future and, um, you know, and helping helping ensure, I suppose, that there's a lot of local art in our collection. You know, we have a globally significant collection of international art, both contemporary and historical, and our Australian art collection is just as good in that regard. And, and shows like Melbourne now are really critical to making that happen and protect, I guess, the collection for the future.
0: As a final question for you, Donna, uh, the announcement that was made this week about Melbourne Now says that the NGV will dedicate uh, $1.5 million initially to acquiring, commissioning and presenting new work. Uh, yeah. The fact that the media, re- media release says an initial $1.5 million, <laughs> how much do you expect the NGV will have allocated by the time Melbourne Now opens in 2023? Yeah
2: yeah the one point five is uh, is our initial commitments from um, our funds uh, from our acquisition funds to acquire and commission work and then we'll be working with um you know our broad um, supporter base of philanthropists and corporate supporters to build upon that so Sort of, we're sort of starting it, I guess, if you think about it, kind of seed funding it, and now we're talking to, to lots of different supporters about what they might do. Philanthropy is so important in the building of the collection and everything that we acquire comes from the generosity of our community, either through um, cash gifts or gifts of artwork. And so now is the moment where you know, we've put the message out there, we're committed to doing this and we'll spend that time working with people to help us build upon it. So we wanted to kind of almost like kickstart, I suppose, the discussion with what we're sort of putting up front um, to, to get this going.
0: I've got to say 1.5 million is pretty good seed funding as things go. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> No, it's super exciting, super exciting. And we hope that, um, you know, this is just um, hopefully a timely announcement that, you know, gives artists and designers locally um, a moment to feel like, you know, our largest institutions are here to support them um, and to support their
0: creativity. It's certainly a hopeful announcement and a really positive announcement, and I can't wait to see what Melbourne now looks like when it takes place in early 2023 at NGV Australia at Federation Square. Uh, more information to be announced soon, but keep an eye on www.ngv.vic.gov.au, and I'm really intrigued to see who's commissioned, who's collected, and what Melbourne now will look like when it opens, as I said, in early 2023. I've been chatting with the NGV's Assistant Director of Curatorial and Audience Engagement, Donna McComb. Donna, thank you so much for joining us here at R. Thank you. Dr Wendy Weir is the Executive Director of Advocacy and Development at the Australia Council for the Arts, which is the federal government's kind of arm's length arts body. Yes, it funds art and uh, everything from individual artists and projects through to uh, the, the major companies around the country. But as Wendy's title suggests, it has a department focused on advocacy and artistic development. Wendy, a very good morning to you. And thank you for joining us to talk about the latest edition of the National Arts Participation Survey.
3: Thanks so much
4: for having me, Richard. And I love
0: talking about this survey. So it's entitled "Creating Our Future" and is one of a series of surveys that the Australia Council has has commissioned and developed over the years. And looking at the way that Australians' attitudes to the to the art change or shift or develop. So this latest edition, "Creating Our Future," uh, is based on a survey conducted in 2019. You did earlier editions in 2016. 2013 and 2009. I guess the the first uh, and simple question is, why do we need to survey uh, Australians about their participation, viewing and thoughts about the arts? What's the value in this kind of survey?
4: The reason why I love this survey so much, Richard, is because this is a survey about what everyday Australians Think about arts and culture. So this isn't about what the Australia Council thinks, or even about what the artistic and cultural community thinks. This is about what arts and culture mean to the broad Australian public. And um, we've been, as you said, we've been tracking these attitudes for over ten years now. So we've got some really important trend data around how Australians are connecting with and engaging with the arts, and how they're participating as well, and how not just participation in terms of going to live events, but also how people are actually making and creating art themselves. And why they do it as well. And the reason why it's important is because we've got this beautiful comprehensive picture. And when I say comprehensive, it is seriously comprehensive because the data sample for this is about 9,000 Australians. So normally for a survey, you can look at about 1,000 and, and that's a sort of acceptable number. But we do a really deep survey. So we've got this incredibly rich and robust picture. But also we can drill down into the segments, um, whether it's around geography or cultural background or so on, to, to get some really strong trend data from there too. But what it tells Tells us. It tells us how Australians are feeling about the arts and whether or not that's changing or adjusting in any way. So it provides really valuable information for policy for government. It provides really valuable information for the arts and cultural community as well because it provides things like insight into growth opportunities or the barriers to access or what what the you know the broader Australian public want to have from their arts and cultural sector, um, and it builds this really important evidence base about the value of the arts to Australians but also to our nation's future in many ways. And I think that value is multifaceted because, of course, there's the economic value which the arts and cultural sector generate, but there's also other kinds of value, which are things around social value, whether that's social cohesion, connection to community, health and wellbeing, and also the kind of cultural value, which means what what does it mean to have a distinctly Australian voice and how that's represented through our arts and culture. So it's valuable on so
0: many levels. And if we talk about the value of arts, it, it, it's intriguing to see that uh, there has been a growth in the number of Australians who recognise that art plays a key role in uh, childhood development, for example, in helping us deal with stress, anxiety or depression, which clearly has been a great benefit uh, in the current pandemic. I'm sure kind of many of us are consuming more art than ever before in the form of film, TV, music, etc., but also the, the fact that art contributes to our sense of well-being and happiness. Now, these are not always values that people associate with the arts. We tend to think of aesthetic value, for example, or indeed economic value. If you're kind of working in, uh, at a small to medium company, you might be arguing the benefit of your work in terms of economic indicators, bums on seats, box office figures, et cetera. But why does the Australia Council need to know that Australians... That fifty-six percent of Australians surveyed recognise that art contributes to our sense of well-being and happiness.
4: I think it's, if there's a really straightforward answer to that one, which is. The arts are a public good um, and that is one of the questions for why they warrant public funding and a lot of people tend to think of the arts as as something that you have in times of plenty or sort of icing on the cake as opposed to part of um, your everyday essential life. And if you contrast it with, and it's often an unhelpful comparison, but if you contrast it with sport where all Australians accept that Sport is important to the well-being of their children. It's important to, you know, your health generally. Everyone accepts that that is part of a healthy um, component for your life. Whereas what we're seeing in this survey is increasingly Australians are seeing um, arts and culture as very much a part of a healthy Um, part of their life as well, as as essential to their health and well-being. And it's interesting because this data was taken just before COVID. um, And we also have a whole raft of data taken during um, the lockdown and also as it continues forward. And I appreciate in in Victoria you're still in lockdown. But... um, what it's showing us is that Australians were already valuing the arts more than ever before. All the trend lines are shifting in a really positive direction about the the reasons why people value the arts for child education, as you said, or for health and wellbeing. Um, And what we saw during, particularly during the lockdown period is how people instantly turned to culture and creativity to help get them through. Um, And also to connect with others as well. When we've been socially isolated, people were using um, you know, whether it was online dance or whatever to actually connect with other people in other ways. So it's, it's an essential part of life and as a public good, it warrants public support.
0: Now, the flip side of that is the report shows that almost, I believe it's almost one in th- uh, th- three in ten Australians agree that the arts are not really for people like me and that they believe that the arts are elitist and too expensive and that is a trend which is actually increasing.
4: That's an interesting data point, actually. And what we've done is looked at that because it's the one that bucks the trend. So we were quite... Um, we had some concern when we did the when we did this survey in 2016 and we saw there was an increased negativity creeping in And some trends which had been moving upwards were starting to drop. That's reversed now, but this is the one trend which has crept up by a small amount, by about 3%. And when we look at that, what's really interesting is that some of, a large portion of the people who are saying the arts are not for me um, are actually highly engaged with arts and culture, and often they come from a First Nations background or a culturally diverse background. So what this is actually suggesting is not so much about the elitism piece, but about the issue of representation in Australian arts. So while these people are highly engaged in arts and culture, they're saying it's not for me because they're not seeing themselves represented as much as they feel they should. Um in the art that's being produced. So it's a really interesting finding on a number of levels, but it's not just tucking into that latest piece, which is, a, is an issue for some people because they tend to think of arts and culture as one very small of arts and culture, rather than recognising that it is a much broader and encompassing definition than opera, ballet and orchestra.
0: Now, certainly there's a couple of points I want to pick up on there to, to begin with uh, the fact that, uh, as the report shows, yes, 98% of Australians engage with the arts, uh, and I wonder, how helpful is it to have such a broad overview of the arts, to, to, to remind people that uh, watching TV, listening to music on the radio or on uh, on CD or via digital download is just as much a part of arts consumption as is reading a new Australian literary novel, seeing a new Australian film, going to the theatre to watch contemporary dance or, uh, or the latest MTC or Malthouse production. Are we kind of... Are we losing something in terms of kind of the, the the blurring the focus by providing such a broad snapshot of the arts, or conversely, are we? Is it really important to remind people that so much of art is part of their everyday life, and they often don't notice that?
4: I tend towards the latter, and I think that ninety-eight percent number is, is, is. I mean, it's stayed pretty standard. I also wonder where the 2% are. Who are these people who are not engaging at all in arts <laughs> and culture? But that's, that's another story. But I think what's interesting, while that 98% number has remained um, the same as it was in the last survey results from 2016, what we've seen is increases across the board in all areas of practice, whether it's dance, theatre, First Nations, arts and so on. So people are attending more, um, which is great. And I think, you know, you could say, well, if 98% of people are already participating problem. And I think the problem is, is that some arts are more accessible than others. Um, And one of the the key takeaways, we asked a new question this year, where we asked people what were their priorities for publicly funded arts. And it came as no surprise that having access to free or low cost events was really, really high up. Um, Because people want to be able to engage in arts and culture. And I think what we've actually seen through COVID, and we are certainly seeing this through the audience data that we've been collecting, is, the opportunities to access a range of arts which may not have been available to the broader public. Uh, Not everyone can afford to take their family to the theatre on a regular basis. Um, But being able to have the the, the option of of having digital versions of that theatre streamed into their lounge room has meant that people can experience those theatre companies in a way they haven't before. And what we're seeing... This is why looking at this data against um, the the audience research data during COVID is is really interesting because people have worked out that they can experience more of the kinds of arts and culture in a digital frame than they have before. And they want both. They want the live experience and they want the digital experience. And they want access to be as easy and as um, cheap as possible in many ways. So I think... Sorry, Richard. Oh, I was just
0: going to say, uh, which kind of does beg the question that post-COVID, kind of uh, I do wonder, and it's certainly uh, a question that's been coming up in some of the webinars I've been hosting uh, over the last couple of weeks for Arts Hub in, as part of my day job, um, people are, well, arts organisations around the company, uh, around the country, are presenting so much free work online. What's the impact of that going to be, I wonder, post-COVID when audiences are saying, but hold on a minute, Six months ago, I could see all these productions for free online or for maybe for a $5 digital download fee. Uh, now you want me to pay $95 to see an equivalent work? It, I'll be really interested to see what the impact of that's going to be on um, the Australians' access and consumption of the arts post, post-pandemic.
4: Absolutely, and I think what we've seen in you know this relatively short period of COVID is the kind of digital acceleration which would have taken years otherwise, kind of kaleidoscope down to a, you know a very short matter of months. And what needs to happen um, is that, our, particularly our arts organisations as well, there's there's so much that needs to happen to ensure that artists can be remunerated for the work that they do, and it doesn't fall down, you know, the trap of some other industries. I'm thinking journalism for one, where once you provide free content, people will never ever be prepared to pay for it in the future. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work to be done around business models and sustainability, but I look at things like, you know, you can have sporting events um, and a strong uh, public um, and political support for sporting events to reopen, recognising what they do for wellbeing, mental health for the community and all the rest of it. And you can do that in a stadium which is barely barely full of people um, because of the broadcasting rights. So it's about thinking what are the models to ensure for future sustainability so that people can actually access more of Australian arts and culture in different ways um, and ensuring that our organisations and our artists are set up to make sure that they are fairly remunerated for the work that they do that contributes to that.
0: If you've just tuned in, I'm,
4: question.
0: I'm, my guest is Dr Wendy Weir, who's the Executive Director of Advocacy and Development at the Australia Council for the Arts. And we're talking about the Australia Council's uh, Creating Our Future report, uh, the results of the National Arts Participation Survey that was uh, published just last month. Uh, Wendy, to pick up uh, one of the points you made earlier, when we were discussing the fact that three in 10 Australians agree that the arts are not really for people like me, you, you picked up on the issue of representation, which for mm-hmm. me is one of the... The really chewy facts that will that comes out of this survey and which can clearly then uh, be used uh, by arts organizations around the country to say we need to be doing more in terms of representation because if culturally and linguistically diverse communities are not seeing themselves reflected on TV in cinema uh, in the art they consume, whatever form that is, then. Again, we will just keep seeing perhaps that figure growing of people saying the arts are not for people like me. Can we to to reflect on that? How significant uh, is that kind of are these kind of findings in terms of helping uh, drive uh, momentum and and drive commitment not only by the Australia Council but the organisations across the country that it funds to do more in terms of uh, issues around representation, not just of culturally and linguistically diverse communities, but people living with disability for example as well.
4: Yeah absolutely and I think I think there's, there's a lot of the survey itself is 200 pages long so there's a lot of detail in it but that's um, the kinds of we were seeing a, a really uh, important message coming up through the the last survey in 2016 and which is reinforced in this one which is around the increasing role of arts and creativity and social cohesion so it's Australians and more and more of us are agreeing that the arts are shaping and expressing our identity and and particularly First Nations arts in terms of the way that Australians are valuing First Nations arts, that is going up in leaps and bounds and continuing but people are still feeling that their access to work from culturally diverse communities or uh, artists with a disability or First Nations arts is not what it should be. So this is a very strong message from the public expressing appetite for that. And we saw this back in 2009. We saw a really interesting gap with First Nations work where we saw that um, people, Australians, were wanting to see and experience First Nations work over two-thirds of them, but less than a quarter of them felt that they actually had the opportunity to. So that was a real imperative to the Australian arts and cultural industry to say... (laughs) get with what the people want and realise that there is an appetite for this work and that the kinds of barriers and hesitations within the the industry around First Nations work saying we don't think people want to go, that just simply wasn't the case. So it was about, and that then prompted a whole range of um, development work across a whole raft of the sector to identify ways that First Nations work could be more of it could be made and more of it could be programmed and starting to chip away at some of the the barriers, which often, you know, would fall down to things like just systemic racism or complete misunderstanding about what audiences needed in order to be able to experience that work. So there's a lot in here about, again, those those areas for growth and development for the art sector themselves so that we are actually moving towards one of the, the strategic goals of the Australia Council, which is that our arts represent us and us is... Australia in all its glorious diversity with a really strong First Nations core.
0: To obtain a copy of the Creating Our Future report, jump online www.australiacouncil.gov.au forward slash research. You can download both an executive summary and the full document, uh, including uh, plain language versions uh, and uh, some... uh, PDFs and uh, Word documents available also in languages other than English. australiacouncil.gov.au forward slash research, as I said. My guest has been Dr Wendy Weir, the Executive Director of Advocacy and Development at the Australia Council for the Arts. Wendy, thank you very much for joining us on the program today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Richard. Appreciate it. This is a podcast from Triple R,
0: an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R
2: by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.
0: Tamika Carter uh, is here to chat about State of Disaster, which is a, a community art project and exhibition, which is a response to COVID-19 and the lockdown and and it's also a self-guided artistic walking tour. Tamika, welcome to Triple R.
1: Thank you for having us, Richard.
0: It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, now, this is an exhibition that you and a colleague have co-curated uh, and you've pulled it together very, very quickly over just a, a couple of weeks, I understand, an opportunity to, for artists to present work by creating a series of of open galleries in front yards and, uh, and uh, houses around Kensington.
1: Yes. So um, the co-curator and I, so I'm working with Ruth Shaves, who's a, and um, she's uh, studying at the moment. She's studying art and design. And she's really interested in sustainability of art, whereas I come from an uh, arts and education background and I've curated a few um, small events in the past with my association with Artists Run Spaces. Um, but essentially we've become friends within the community. She works at the local cafe. We've kind of made mates. Um, throughout COVID, um, in this kind of shared understanding of of disconnect during this state that we're in, um, so we've kind of formed a relationship through that. And then we we always have these really beautiful discussions that um, can be quite intense at times, at, you know, over a cuppa. Um, and we got talking, and we started to kind of think about ways that we could connect the community. So you know, the impetus came from this notion of people placing things in their front window, that kind of trope of, you know, children and people behind these doors and these windows trying to connect with the outside world. So we took that simple notion and we thought how could we recontextualize that idea within an exhibition context that allows not only the community to connect, but also how can we, you know, take um, you know, local artists and and the hardship that's been placed on, in particular, you know, creative practitioners during COVID. How can we support them to reconnect with community um, in a way that is meaningful? Um, in order to, you know, question the stuff around us, celebrate the stuff around us, talk about individual experiences and loss and trauma, um, and and find the beauty in that in a way so it's it's come from a simple idea but it's actually become quite a large project and as we wanted it to be a, res- a direct response to the crisis that's why it happened so quickly <laughs>
0: And it's also uh, one of the things I love about this idea is that it, it's a celebration of place and it's also acknowledging that under the, the lockdown uh, laws at the moment, we can have uh, an hour's exercise. So you've created a, an artistic walking tour that can be done in an hour. So people in the Kensington area or within a, a five kilometre radius can, could drive in, walk the streets and see art. So you get fresh air, exercise, maybe get to acknowledge people in passing, but you also get a considered aesthetic and artistic experience as part of that.
1: Absolutely. So we were actually very overwhelmed by the response from the community, um, from local people offering to be host houses for people that may not be in the, the main vicinity of the area and also from artists themselves. So rather than having one map that went for an hour-long walk, what we've had to do is, in a short amount of time, actually curate two separate walks because there's, you know, 13 um, projects within the show, so 13 um, artists or collaborators um, that are part of the project. So we've created two separate walks on either side of the train tracks, um, which makes quite a nice uh, uh, aesthetic map on the website um, but it's also enabling people to you know do one walk one day and then do the next walk another day it's been really nice as well because we have such uh, a wide spectrum of different art forms there are particular works such as video works or sound works um, that uh, enable viewers to kind of come at certain times of the day so because of the the nature of an open gallery it has certain limitations in a way because you've got you know, works behind glass, so there's that reflective quality that you have to be considerate of, you know, depending on the time of day. So it means that people can navigate these things kind of over and over again in a way to kind of see them in a different light. Um, But, yeah, we've we've had to maintain it within those uh, restrictions, but it's quite a nice curatorial... Um, boundary to work within as well. It's a, because...
0: it's a fun creative challenge, that idea of going, <laughs> how can we represent work uh, and how can we encourage people to stroll the streets? So, for example, from, I don't know, starting at uh, Barnett Street, Kensington and ending up in Rankins Road in Kensington, for example, or the other one, start in Tennyson Street, Kensington and finish up in McConnell Street uh, and look at art along the way. But also, I like the fact that it's encouraging people to be more thoughtful and more attentive of their surroundings, particularly if it's a suburban area you know well. You often tune out. You don't really see the area you live in anymore. It's just part of the background noise. So in this instance, not only are you asking people to to walk the streets and to pay attention to artwork, but by doing so, encouraging them to be more open and more thoughtful about their surroundings.
1: Absolutely, and I think that really... um that really resonates with one of the particular artists in the show, um, Sally McIntyre and Campbell Walker. Um, They're uh, partners that live in the same house. Um, You know, Sally has a sound practice. She's a Dunedin artist who, you know, recently moved to Kensington. So it's been a really beautiful way to connect with new people within the area. And her partner, Campbell, is a filmmaker. So they've made a work in this beautiful old butcher shop and... Campbell is a filmmaker, so he's got these projections on the ceiling, which you can see at night, and they have these kind of uh, happenings, like instruction works pinned to their door that change every couple of days. So you might go one day and there'll be an instruction that incites the viewer to go and sit in the park and simply be present, thinking about, you know, the foreground and the background of the soundscape and how immersive just the act of sitting and listening can be. So, yes, absolutely, I feel like their work in particular speaks to that notion of being present in the environment, um, which also links to, I think, some of the more of the silver linings of COVID. You know, I keep getting calls from friends asking if I'm okay being stuck in Melbourne, but in a sense, there's, there's a sense of harmony as well in this notion of being paused, in a way. So I think that that kind of speaks to the project as well, which is really interesting.
0: The project is called State of Disaster and is a, a self-guided artistic walking tour of kind of outdoor creative galleries uh, in the Kensington area. Uh, State of Disaster Kensington com, and you can find the the walking map, which will give you the details. And it's on now until the twentieth of September. Uh, Tamika, in terms of the artists who are represented, are they all Kensington locals, or are some of them blow-ins? They're all
1: Kensington locals, and it's. Yeah, it's really quite amazing how, you know, uh, Ruth and I, the co-curator, were just talking about how all of these artists are such a beautiful representation or a slice of the neighbourhood. But within that, you know, they're from all these different cultural contexts. They're all different art forms. We've got emerging artists. We've got established artists. um, We've got people that consider themselves makers. So, it's yeah, it's such a beautiful... Uh, representation of a small area and they are all living or working in this area. So um, I'm very proud to be part of Kensington and very proud to be part of this project.
0: Well, it's uh, I just love the the fact that this has all come together so quickly, as well as all the ideas it's presenting and exploring. Uh, State of dot com is the website to go to, where you'll find more about the project, the artists involved, and the two different walking tours. Each one, which will take you approximately a one-hour walk, as you walk around the streets uh, of Kensington on either side of the train line, and look at work that's been placed kind of in windows and uh, to be kind of accessible. Uh, so that you don't have to go to a gallery because you can't at the moment, but you can walk the streets instead. Tamika Carter, thanks very much for joining us on Triple R.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Film critic Alexandra Hella Nicholas, who joins us to talk about In Fabric, uh, now. Alexandra, I've seen many strange films in my time. I've seen a film about a murderous killer tyre, for example, that rolls along the side <laughs> of the road, kind of offing people. I've seen films about, I don't know, giant mutated grizzly bears eating people. But a film about a haunted dress is kind of new and strange for me.
3: You know, it it is and it isn't in a funny way. John Carpenter's made a film about, about haunted... Fabric, but if we think back, we don't really think of it as a horror film. But there's a beautiful old film called The Red Shoes by Towlin Preminger, which is really a story about it's a musical, really, but it's really about haunted ballet slippers. And Kate Bush, our queen, loves that so much that she wrote a whole album inspired by The Red Shoes. She even directed a film inspired by the red shoes so haunted garments i mean we're all haunted by our clothes right we all have our favorite t-shirts that have certain memories that we look at fondly and recall times of yore so there's something perhaps in the material the very material of the clothes that we wear that is rich (laughs) for haunting. <laughs> so the
0: film in fabric uh, is about a woman and a haunted dress, uh, a, uh, a, a dress which may be possessed, perhaps, but uh, it's certainly a it's a hypnotic film, and it's being presented. Uh, and screened uh, by Capital Theatre Theatre RMIT. There's an opportunity to watch the film online, uh, which will be streaming online for 24 hours. And then you're hosting a, an in conversation with the director, but also associated with the, the screening of uh, In Fabric. We've got uh, conversations about costume design, about uh, kind of fashion and desire and consumption. It feels like this film, In Fabric, is not only rich enough to enjoy on itself but clearly rich enough to sustain a weekend of conversation and discussion
3: there's, there's a lot going on in this film and one of the things that I think is so magical about it is that in many ways it's quite like you said it's you know it's about a haunted rock it, it's quite fluffy and silly but at the heart of that lies some really interesting almost theoretical ideas about about the value of clothing um, and the production of clothing and the life of clothing. You know, we, 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 what happens when we throw our clothes out? You know, what happens when we choose to buy something that's cheap and made in a, you know, production line overseas where people are not getting paid much, if at all, um, compared to something that's been hand-stitched by your mum? So there's a lot of depth and there's a lot – I think that the Fashion Masterclass, which is on Monday, which is part of this three-day event, um, I don't want to play down my amazing part of this <laughs> of these festivities. My in conversation with Peter will of course be dazzling, um, but I do think that this public masterclass um, with the designer of the film and Peter um, and you know some wonderful academics from RMIT's fashion. Um, will be really interesting as well because I think fashion's one of those things that we just take for granted. You know, we get up, we get dressed, we don't perhaps think about it that much. We don't think about where our clothes come from. We don't think about where they're going.
0: But what we do sometimes think about is the impact clothes, garments, fabric can have on our psychology. I remember vividly in my very early 20s when I got my very first pair of Doc Martens boots, for example, the lacing them up, there was a potency and a power to them, kind of uh, putting on a pair of... Putting on my docks, putting on a a leather jacket and stomping out aggressively into the world. It's like clothes allow you to channel different parts of your your mind, your imagination, your psychology. There's clearly a film like Peter Strickland's uh, In Fabric is really tapping into the way that... Clothes are not just aspects of our personality. They are uh, ways in which we dress up our personality, allow different aspects of ourselves to shine.
3: Absolutely. I think that um, fashion, you know, I mean, and when I say fashion, I don't mean high fashion, uh, just clothes. I think that they're transformational devices. And for those of us, yourself included, Richard, I'm going to get a little personal here, but for those of us who have a subcultural background, um, you know, if, if you were like us and a bit of a goth in your youth, the putting on of certain clothes is like, it's, it's almost like a kind of tribal act, like a kind of primal, um, you know, you're, you're aligning yourself with a particular community um, through your clothes. And that, that applies obviously to a lot of different subcultures and there's, been, you know, there's a whole field of subcultural studies um, that, that taps into this stuff. You're absolutely right. I mean, clothes, there's a depth um, of cultural significance, I think, to fashion that we perhaps don't often think about. So you're going
0: to have a lot to talk about with Peter Strickland, the, the director of In Fabric. For you, tell us what... What is it about this film that resonates with you so strongly beyond those kind of uh, some of the things we've talked about, the the subcultural elements of fashion and the idea of clothes that are haunted, perhaps even malevolent? Um, The design of the film, the look, the, the style of it, I presume, is also something that fascinates you.
3: Absolutely. Look, I'm an um, unabashed Peter Strickland fan, which is something that, um, you know, critics shouldn't say. You're meant to be nice and objective. Uh, but this is Peter's fourth feature film. Um, and he was, he was a guest at the Melbourne International Film Festival last year where there was a retrospective of his work. Um, and I was fortunate enough to do it in conversation with Peter last year in person uh, at the Wheeler Centre as part of MIF last year, where we talked about his career more broadly. So this is actually a really lovely opportunity to continue that conversation really, but focus specifically on In Fabric. But In Fabric really, for me, and one of the things that Peter has spoken about being, that really inspired him with the making of this film, is his memories of being a child and going to department stores. And um, that really taps into something that I, you know, I don't think everybody might have that, but I certainly have like a sense memory of that. You know, being a little kid, and just wandering into racks of clothing and vanishing in these sort of swathes of fabric. Um, you know, these were sort of strange, exotic places. Um, I often call this film a, a gothic, a gothic are you being served? And <laughs> people think I'm kidding, and then they watch it, and they're like, no, it's a gothic are you being served, you <laughs>
0: Now, the film itself, in fabric, as we said, is uh, being made available online uh, for viewing for 24 hours between 7pm from uh, tomorrow, Friday the 11th of September and uh, 6.59pm on Saturday the 12th of September and I believe it's available for Australian and New Zealand audiences uh, and then uh, your live in conversation is happening at 7pm this Saturday with Peter Strickland, the director of In Fabric and then as we've said yet, yeah, there's also a masterclass on fashion victims desire bodies and consumption which is happening on Monday at 5.30pm uh, with Dr Ricarda Biggeland, the Associate Dean of Fashion and Textile Design at RMIT. Peter Strickland, the director, uh, is contributing. Uh, The film's costume designer, Joe Thompson, I believe, is also taking part in that. And Joe's... I love the fact that um, Joe's uh, kind of... Uh, list of film credits, yes, includes In Fabric, this film about kind of a haunted, malevolent, beautiful dress, but also This Is England, which kind of of is a beautifully designed kind of film, again, referencing uh, uh, subculture. Uh, And then also fashion artist Adele Varco is going to be part of that discussion as well. It really does sound like that's going to be a really rich discussion.
3: It is, and I think that so much at the heart of this film... In a way, lies in that in that conversation. So, P- Peter and I will talk about the broader concept of the film and the themes and the energy and the casting. Um, but that masterclass, I think, will really drill down into the heart of the materiality and the value of fashion. So, a lot of the things that we've touched on here, probably a little less about are you, are you being served? <laughs>
0: Uh, For tickets and more info, you can jump online, The Capital, as in uh, Capital Theatre, the C-A-P-I-T-O-L. Uh, the thecapital.tv uh, In Fabric is rated MA15+. Uh, plus. Tickets of $14 plus a booking fee and $1 from every sale will be donated to The Social Studio, a fashion business dedicated to improving the lives of young Australians who come from a refugee or migrant background. But those details again, the film will be available to watch online from 7pm fr- this Friday uh, uh, and you have 24 hours to watch it and then the live in conversation with director Peter Strickland and my guest film critic Alexandra Heller-Nicholas is happening at 7pm on Saturday night. So watch the film, enjoy the conversation and then the Masterclass on Monday at 5.30pm. Tickets, $14 plus booking fee from thecapital.tv. Alexandra, thank you so much for joining us on the program and I will never watch Are You Being Served in the same way again. (laughs) My pleasure.